We've been Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 10 today. So if you're not really familiar with the Bible, that's okay. Uh, we have a couple Bibles in the back if you want to grab those. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that. That's our gift to you. Uh, that is where life is found. Christ is found there, and he's better than, than life itself. So please, please read it. Um, chapter 10 is where we'll be. And I'm going to actually just uh, read the text. It's a short one. It'll be verses 1 through 7. Starting in verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an arrow proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Before we kind of get into this, I want you guys to think... Think about something small in life that impacts something very big. Some tiny that has great impact on something very big. Got it? Uh, Maybe you thought of a light switch, right? Little tiny switch, you press a little button back there. All these lights go on and lights everything up. Uh, Maybe you thought of a car key. Car key is really tiny and it It ignites and charges up massive semi-trucks. Maybe you thought of the word yes to a marriage proposal. Choices. Choices in and of themselves, a decision, a choice is tiny, but it can have drastic effects upon big things. So keeping in that theme of choices, think about a time when you saw someone, or maybe it was yourself, make a poor decision that had great consequences and damaged their reputation and their character. I think we can all relate to that. Maybe it's a student who cheats on an exam. They decide, little choice, to cheat on an exam and they're expelled from school. Maybe you think of a relationship that you decided to go into that you look back upon and you say that was a horrible decision. But I think most relevant in the context that we're in, um, unfortunately, many of us have seen how pastors have chosen to make a foolish decision that damaged their reputation permanently and has disintegrated a church. Uh, There are churches in this area. And whether you are guilty of doing that or you have been the victim of someone's choice like that, regardless, things after that moment, things are really never the same. Because in essence, character has been compromised. 
character has been compromised. And here's, here's my message today. It's really simple, and you're going to hear me say it a lot. It's all about who you are, not what you do. It's about who you are. It's about who I am, not about what you do or what I do or what you have or what I have or even what we hope to have. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, before God, what matters most is who you are. To simplify, it's about the who, not the do. It's about your reputation, not your riches. It's about having a good name, not great fame. It's about having character, not cash. It's about having integrity, not having great equity. It's about who you are inside, not what you have or what you do on the outside. And this is a common theme from the lips of Solomon. Uh, he also says this not just in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, which we'll just see in just a little bit, but in, in Proverbs 22 verse 1. So Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, but he also wrote Proverbs. He says this, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. To put it in our terms, to choose to have a good name, to be a person who is permanently of good character, godly integrity, is to be chosen over quadrupling your salary. Name your salary. Whatever you want. From the lips of Solomon, from the pen of Solomon, which we believe as Christians was inspired by God, God would say, choose a good name. Now, a name to us today, we typically like to choose names more because they sound cool, right? We, you know, you, my wife and I, we go back and forth, oh, that's a cool name, we like that, we should choose that one. My wife was, uh, used to be a nurse at a school in the Philly area, and uh, she actually would, would come back and tell me some of the names that people chose. Uh, one was Heaven Backwards, Nevaeh. You ever heard that one? That's interesting. I never heard that before. I was like, wow, it's cool, right? Um, another one was, true story, you guys know when you go to the, to the hospitals, it'll say like, um, baby girl Allison, right? She, my wife looked at the, the thing, it said, baby girl, baby girl. They named their child baby girl. I, to each his own. Uh, but regardless, that's beside the point. Back during this time, your name represented your character, who you were. It was far more important than just something that sounded cool. And then sticking with our book, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, if you just want to flip a couple pages back, it says in verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Right? Precious ointment is very valuable. It's great worth. If you sold it, you could have lots of money. Always choose the great name over the precious ointment. So when you look at all that you own, all that you have in your life, one of your greatest possessions that you have is your integrity, your character, your name, who you are, your reputation. Far more than anything you own 
that you wish to own. So just real quick, I'll just pause here. A good indication of whether you actually live according to this is this. What takes up most of your prayer life? Do you pray more for the circumstances to change in your life or for the substance of your character to change? Both are good, but what consumes your prayer life? When you, pr- husbands, when you pray with your wife, do you pray, Lord, do you, I don't know, pray for better circumstances, this to be taken away, this to be added in your life, this to be improved into, in your life? Or do you pray for your spouse and their character and yourself as a husband? Do you pray that God would make you a better father? Do you pray that God would make you a better husband? Do you pray that pray for your wife, that God would instill in her greater substance? Do you pray for your kids, that they would grow up to be godly men and women who love to serve Jesus with great joy and profound courage? What consumes your prayer life reveals a lot about what is valuable to you. So who you are is far more valuable than what you do. And because of this, you should guard it, invest in it, protect it, preserve it more than anything else you have or anything else you own or anything else you do. The reason, why is this? The reason is because it takes years, decades to establish godly character. It takes time. It takes days, months, years, five years, ten years. It takes a lifetime to establish integrity. And it takes something very small to destroy it in a moment. And you may not be able to repair it for the rest of your life. This is what Solomon's getting at in verses 1 through 2. Okay? Dead flies, what? Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly, outweighs wisdom and honor. It's kind of interesting. He compares ointment to your character, to your honor. What's up with this ointment? Well, if you go back to, I had to look this up, um, study this. If you go back to Exodus 30, God's talking to Moses about this perfumer's ointment that has to be made for the temple. And you're supposed to use it to anoint things that are sacred, holy, and need to be set apart for God. So Solomon is comparing your name to a perfumer's ointment. He's saying it is sacred, it is holy, it should be set apart, it should be protected. You should not let flies get into it. Because once it gets in there, it's ruined, it's damaged. I lost my place, I'm sorry. (laughs) So, um, here we go. So something small, like a fly, could get into your character and give off a stench. Uh, Just a little interactive time here. How many of you guys have smartphones? Everyone should raise their hand, right? How many of you guys do not have a case on your smartphone? 
Wow. <laughs> Very few, okay? All right. I won't, I won't say anything about that. Um, we, these things are very valuable. Some of them are five, six, seven, eight hundred bucks. And we pay extra money to put a casing on it, to put a glass screen over it so it doesn't get, get damaged. Okay, so a couple summers ago, for whatever, oh, I know why. You know whenever you have like a, like a, it's like a sticky case, like rubbery, and it's in your pocket, and it's like, it's basically, it's like trying to pull a car tire out of your pocket, and it rips the pocket out, so you got to stuff it back in, and you're driving, and you got, sorry, anyways. Um, so we, it's bothering me, I'm doing some work around the house, and, I'm, and I like to listen to sermons and, and music and stuff, so I, I want to change my song, it's bothering me, so I'm like, all right, I'm going to take my case off this one time, so I can slip it in and, in and out, right? So I do that one time. I take the case off. What happens? Walking to the sidewalk, pull my phone out to check the song, to change the song. What happens? I drop it on the ground, makes that noise where you're like, that was not a good sound. And you're just like, I, I do not want to see the other side of this phone. I pick it up. Screen's just shattered. One slip. I drop the guard one time, and it shatters the phone, ruins the phone. If you are not careful with your character, with your name, one slip of character, one lapse in your judgment, a little folly, a little sin can ruin honor, can ruin your name, can ruin your character. And isn't it interesting that when you look at the qualifications of an elder of a church, in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, apart from the one requirement they have to be able to teach, everything else is character. Everything else for the qualifications of an elder is character. Why do you think this is? One, it has to do with because God is a God of character. The great shepherd of the church is a savior who has integrity, a savior who has character. And so the shepherds of his church, the under-shepherds, must mirror and model that character as well. But I think even more on the ground, God is far more concerned with the person in the pulpit as opposed to his ability to preach. God is far more concerned about the substance of your character than the skill of your preaching. Because if you think about it, if, if you're listening to a man who's preaching and you know that he is unfaithful to his wife, first of all, there's not going to be anyone in the audience. He's a living contradiction. No one will listen. It will drain all authority. It will plug all ears if there is no character coming out of that man. It's no wonder that when Samuel was called to go find the next king, and he's looking at all the different men of, you know, David's brothers, and he's like, oh, surely this is the one. Surely this is the one. Surely this is the one. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6 through 7, when they came, he looked, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is far more, it doesn't matter if you're a beast in the pulpit. If you're a bum to your wife, you do not deserve a hearing. I found this, I was, you know, Charles Spurgeon, you guys I'm sure I've heard of him. He's considered the, the prince of preachers. He wrote this book called Lectures to My Students. His first chapter, everything else is basically about how to preach and how to teach, all that kind of stuff. His first chapter is called The Minister's Self-Watch. All about watching yourself, watching your integrity, watching your character. And there's this quote in this book. I'll just read it to you. It has forever scarred me in a good way. The fear of the Lord must teach the young man wisdom or he is barred from the pastorate. Let's put that in, in layman's terms. You sit the bench. You're going to get benched. The highest moral character must be sedulously maintained. Many are disqualified for office in the church who are well enough as simply being members. I hold very stern opinions with regard to Christian men who have fallen into gross sin. I rejoice that they may be truly converted and may be with mingled hope and caution received back into the church. But I question, gravely question, whether a man who has grossly sinned should be very readily restored to the pulpit. As John James remarks, when a preacher of righteousness has stood in the way of sinners, he should never again open his lips in the great congregation until his repentance is as notorious as his sin. I think you guys get the point. Um, it doesn't matter if you're John Piper. If you have no integrity, no one will listen to what you're saying. It's about who you are not what you do. Now, if you look at verse 2, he starts, gets a little bit deeper into the heart and how that plays a role. Verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. You guys have heard the joke about this verse, right? This is not a political verse. It's not a favoring the Republican side or the... Anyways. Um, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right but a fool's heart to the left. I, I, I did some studying about, about this. You know, people speculate, what does right mean? What does left mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? It, the text doesn't say. So anything else is basically speculation. There's one commonality. The heart determines where you go. If folly is in the heart, it'll take you that way. If grace is in the heart, it will take you that way. It's getting into the essential aspect of the heart, how it controls everything you, to do, you do. The heart is like the steering wheel of your life. So whatever you let into the driver's seat will drive you that way. And if you know anything about car wrecks, it doesn't take much to get into a wreck. Right? I mean, just one glance at a text message destroys everything. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Dead flies, little tiny flies make the perfumers or men give off a stench 
a little compromise of your character, a little relaxing of your integrity, one click of the mouse, one lapse in judgment, one slip of the tongue, and it all comes down. And what happens is wherever you go, you you give off this stench. So look at verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Even if you give the man direction and a firm place to walk, no matter where he goes, people are holding their nose because they, they know his character has been compromised. No matter where he goes, because he's let the folly, a little folly, run his heart, it has driven him to a place where it turned his heart more into a trash can and people smell it and people know it and people recognize it. So typically I, I, I save application towards the end. But I'm just going to stop here and do a little bit of application. If it's true that it's more about who you are rather than what you do or what you have, men, True greatness. I'm not saying only men have this tendency, but I I typically find that men have this tendency, this this inner urge to be great and build this massive kingdom and for yourself. And I fall and pray to it. True greatness is not about doing big things, but in successfully doing the small things over a long time period of time. And let me tell you, if you actually let this drive into your heart, it is one of the most freeing, liberating realities of your life. Because rather than constantly grabbing, pulling, reaching for these great things, you know if true greatness in the eyes of God is just being faithful today, then I'm killing it. That's so liberating. What do I have to do today? Okay, just do this. I can do that today. Wake up and do it tomorrow. Wake up and do it the next week. Wake up and do it the next month. Wake up and do it the next year and for decades. And you will look back on your life and you will say, God, I don't know how you did that. But I tell you, you truly are a miracle worker. It's very liberating. And it will free maybe some of you from thinking, when am I going to get this? When am I going to get that? Just faithful today. If you're single, are you more concerned with who God wants you to marry or with who God wants you to be? Are you more concerned about who God wants you to marry or simply focusing on who does God want me to be? And what, what are you attracted to? What do you want others to be, well, how do I say this? What do you want to attract others with? If you want a godly man or woman, you must have godly character. Literally, if you just go, uh, in my Bible, it's the next page over, Song of Solomon, verse, chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name character, who you are, is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins 
love you. Sounds kind of strange. You can laugh, it's okay. Your name is oil poured out, therefore, virgins love you. Now, the li- whether you're not supposed to take a literal, like literally virgins, the, the emphasis is on a woman of integrity, a woman who's pure, a woman who's godly. If you yourself focus on your godly character, chances are what will attract godly women is your character. Maybe some of you are impatient with what God is doing in your life. When is God going to, I feel like I'm not doing anything for God. When is he going to work in my life? I, don't, I feel like I'm not really doing anything for him or making an impact. Maybe God wants you to learn to be faithful with some small things first and build some character and just be patient with this process. Do you know that it took from the time that David was anointed to the time that he was exalted to king over the nation of Israel was about 20 years. And a lot of that time was him running from Saul and protecting his life and making some mistakes. And, but God was forming in him this whole time. Be okay with God's process in your life. Maybe you're married. Maybe you should focus less on who you think your spouse should be for you and more on who God wants you to be for your spouse. That may solve a lot of conflict. If, you, if your focus, because you, you cannot control what someone else can do. All you can focus on is who do you want me to be for this woman? Who do you want me to be for this man? And I will do it. Because Christ is enough. He is for me. My hope is in heaven. My true husband is in Christ. That is going to be a glorious day. Maybe you have wrecked your name. Maybe you're at the point in your life where you're like, frankly, I have compromised my character like crazy and I don't know what to do. Maybe you went through a, a time in your life and you look back on it with regret. And you think, I don't, I don't know how God could use me. I don't know how this could ever be repaired. Let me tell you something. The gospel says that when God redeems someone by the blood of Christ, he does not just give them a new life. He gives them a new name. And then after he gives them the new name, by grace, he then, over time, conforms them and shapes them to fit into the name, child of God. There was a time when I was uh, back at, at Wheaton, and I was, there was this guy who oversaw, there's this really massive building at Wheaton College called the Billy Graham Center. It's huge. And this guy named Lon Allison oversaw the whole entire building project. So I'm, I'm, I just wanted to know, like, seemed like a really godly guy. I was like, how did you oversee? How did you do this great, massive thing? He said, Mike, inch by inch, everything's a cinch. I, my mind was blown when I heard that. Because I was like, oh, yeah, you can inch? Yeah, I can do an inch. I can do, okay, two inches, three inches, four inches. I don't think it's anything different with your character. If you have, if you have destroyed your character... And God has redeemed you through Christ. He's given you a new name. And inch by inch, day by day, the Spirit will begin to restore you and build you up again. Just think through what's the next step. It may be confession. It may be repentance. I don't know what it is. 
Get alone with God. Just know that he has not, he has not forgotten you. He has not given up on you. He does not regret saving you. How, what a foolish idea. God does not regret saving anyone. No matter how damaged their reputation, with God, all things are possible. So what, okay? So what? If, if you, okay, so I get it, right? It's all about who you are, not what you do. I got it, all right? So what? How does this impact my life? Verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Here's how I'd put it. If you believe this, it cultivates fearless faith within. So it talks about if the anger of the ruler rises against you, even if power and prestige and wrath come against you in this world, you have nothing to fear. Your calmness will lay it to rest. Your response to this is not fear. It is not flight. Let me say that again. That doesn't work. It is not fight, nor is it flight. You do not fight against it. You do not run from it. You simply have fearless faith in your God. Trust in him. Trust that he has you. He is for you. He is not against you. Even if power and prestige come against you, you have nothing to fear. Why is this? Because that's, that's really the question, right? Why, why, why is it that I would not fear? I think it has to do with what Solomon said back in Proverbs 28, verse 1. He says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous are bold as a lion. In other words, you know who you are before God. You are a justified sinner. You are declared righteous before God. Even if the wrath of a king comes against you, you know who you are before the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Even if 10,000 armies were to come against you in wrath, you know that the wrath of the one true king is appeased and is not against you. It is gone. Because when Christ died, the wrath of God was appeased. Fully, finally, permanently. Done. All sins, past, present, future. In Christ's body, God looks at his son. All of his wrath, out on his son, not on me. And so you look at this and you have no fear. And he triumphed over the grave. The righteous by faith, not by works. The righteous are bold as a lion. You know who you are before God. And you will say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, you should preach this self to yourself a lot. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Any charge. Satan, bring it. World, bring it. It is gone. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Do you know what it means to be justified by God? Although you and I truly, we, in, in the eyes of God, we are unrighteous in his sight. We are wretches in his sight. We are sinners in his sight. Justified means God declares you righteous. He looks upon a guilty sinner and says, clean, pure, righteous, blameless, holy. How can that be? If God says that, if God says that you are justified, is he lying? If he says you're righteous, is he lying? The answer is no. Because there is the righteous one named Jesus who established the perfect righteousness on this earth. There was no sin in him. And everyone who trusts in him, his righteousness is given to them as a gift by faith. And so that's how he sees you. And if that's what you, who you know that you are, if that's who you know that you are, that is what frees you. That is what gives you fearless faith. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's none. So you know who you are before God. And you care more about that. You know who you are before God. You're a justified sinner. And then you, out of that, it is not as if you, you do not pursue godly character to be justified. You are justified, and out of that truth, you are free to pursue godly character. Next. You see things for what they really are. So it produces fearless faith, and you see things for what they really are. Look at verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an arrow proceeding from the ruler. So he sees something. He notices something. It, it's not right. It's evil. It's off. But he sees it for what it really is. What does he see? Verse 6. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. Here's how I'd put it. You see that the highest ones, the exalted ones on this earth, are actually the foolish ones and the poorest. And then he says in the second half, and the rich sit in a low place. The humbled ones and the lowest ones are actually the wisest and the richest before Christ. And then in verse 7, what else does he see? I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. In other words, the freest on the outside, you realize, are actually slaves within. And those who seem to be slaves on the outside are actually the freest within. When you realize that it's about who you are, not what you do, what you have, before God, in Christ, justified by grace, 
You don't need anything else in this world, so you are free to be a willing slave of all, to be a willing servant of everyone else. Because you see where true wealth is found and you see where true freedom is found. Listen to how Psalm 147, verses 10 through 11, encourages you. God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Do you want God to delight in you? I have spoken to people before who do not believe that God delights in them. This tells you how God can delight in you. This tells you how God can smile upon you. It is those who hope in his steadfast love. And where is the steadfast love of God found? God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, let's try that again. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, died for us. Do you believe that God died for you? Do you believe that God died for you? Do you believe that Christ was crucified for you? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was nailed to a cross for you? If you do, those who hope in his steadfast love, God takes pleasure in. He is pleased with you. Psalm 33, 16 through 22. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. And this is why I prayed at the beginning, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. Some trust in things that they have. Some trust in things that they do. But we do not do that. We put our trust in the name of the Lord our God. You don't need that house. You don't need that job. You don't need that thing that you think you need. Because you see where true wealth and true freedom is found. One little test of how you know whether or not you have succumbed to this, you find yourself hoping in something you do or something you have. Ask yourself, would you, would you say, I would trust in Jesus or I would follow Jesus if... I would follow Jesus if. Typically, what's on the other side of that if is your true God. If there's anything in you that's like, I would put my full trust in Jesus if. As opposed to, when you realize 
that he laid his life down for you at all costs, the least we can do is open up our lives at all costs. Regardless of what he calls us to give up, regardless of what he calls us to let go of, regardless of what he calls us to stop trusting in. When the cross of Christ becomes beautiful to you, it captivates a heart and you say, at all costs, Lord. It's not about who you are. Excuse me, that was wrong. It's about who you are, not what you do. Before the eyes of God, true greatness is in lowliness. The richest of all is the poorest of all. The freest of all is a willing slave of all. The shamed ones will be the glorified ones, and there is great gain in godly character. Um, here's how I'll close. Just a couple steps. Um, if you're kind of wondering, how, how do I do this? I see it. I get it. It's, it's not about what I do or what I have. It's about me before God, my character, godly integrity. How do I do that? First step is you have to hope in Christ. First step is you hope in Christ. You must turn your hopes away from anything else that is tempting your heart away from him. And you must set your hope fully upon the grace of God in Christ. Number two, after you have set your hope, then pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. At all costs, do whatever it takes. Get rid of whatever you need to. That is in accord with God's expectations, of course. Do whatever you need to to pursue a life of Christ-likeness. Pursue godliness. Pursue holiness. Who is Christ? What does he want me to be? Hope, holiness, humility. You are not growing in holiness if you are not also growing in humility. A sense of self-forgetfulness. Um... What cultivates a sense of humility in your life? Pursue that. What cultivates something that makes you feel a little bit too proud? Does God want you to let go of that? Hope, holiness, humility, and I apologize, I couldn't think of another H. The last one is faithfulness. Be faithful. Do it today. Do it tomorrow. Do it next week, next month, next year. This, I I believe this is the the pathway to living a great life that honors God and is free from the world which tells you that you have to do or that you have to have in order to honor God or in order to be great. When you realize that in Christ, in Christ, it's about who you are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word this morning. I thank you for the gospel. uh, That it frees us, it liberates us to to pursue integrity and character. We thank you, Lord, that um, you have sent your son, uh, the appearance of our great God and Savior, who has given his life as a ransom to free us from the things that we are hoping in, to put our hope in him. 
Lord, help us to pursue a life of faithful humility, holiness, empowered by the grace of Jesus Christ in the cross, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, we do this every week as a church.